WBZ original. By the way, I saw a tweet yesterday that the most searched Thanksgiving pie is apple. You're still on this. You <laughs> yes, lost that argument no. so long no, ago. Wait, lost? Yes, you we lost that argument. It. I wouldn't say you won. I would say I won. I would say I, I agree even, that pumpkin yeah, but, pie is probably a premier Thanksgiving no, no, pie. No, no, no. I said pecan pie. Pe- pecan, excuse yeah. me. But you were trying to insinuate that apple pie wasn't apple pie, in the game at all. Apple pie is not in the game. It is. Apple pie it's is a 4th fruit. of July right, summer you guys, pie. You guys are going it's not true. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Week before Thanksgiving. Welcome into the Studio BZ broadcast booth. This is Season 2, Episode 11, and I'm Paula Evan. I am Liam Martin. Uh, everyone ready for turkey? Yes. And John and Keller. I'm John Keller, and I am not only ready uh, today driving into the office... I was stopped at a red light in there on the traffic island. Here we go. Huge, massive turkey. You hate them so much. Gobbling away, strutting around. I'm wondering if that was an omen. An omen for... He hates them so much. For dinner. For dinner, for dinner. He wants to eat them. Do you just John is anti-turkey? Oh, he hates turkey. The only good turkey is a dead dressed turkey. (laughs) Dressed in stuff. See, I'm pro-turkey. I'm pro turkey. I like, like them. them. I, yeah, I think Walking they're cool around. looking and uh, Good. funny, funny feature. personalities. Do you you can go hang out with them then. <laughs> Do you just revel in eating them on Thanksgiving no. Day? Do you think to yourself, you We're got turkeys? You got it coming. <laughs> To tell you the truth, I'd rather have a good steak. It's true. I know. I know. It's a meal that's been kind of imposed upon it's, it's us. It's kind of overrated. Turkeys and pigeons both get a bad rap. That's what I said. Only say. from New England would people be made to eat bland meat, bland <laughs> vegetables, <laughs> and maybe you'll get a tasty dessert. Anyway, like our first topic deals with a way you could possibly enhance the Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner experience. Yes? Liam? Yes. Marijuana, the recreational marijuana, was legalized in 2016. Shops have not opened yet, but they are about to open in a matter of days. We have a special guest, a CEO of a marijuana business in Massachusetts to talk to us about what the next steps are going forward. And wow. John, an icon died yesterday. Yeah, Stan Lee, the comic mm. book maestro, creator of Spider-Man and many other memorable characters. We're getting a very interesting perspective on what he meant to comic book art and what's going on now in at the forefront or the cutting edge of comic book arts uh, with a a figure from the, as Jonathan Case puts it, the local geek community. His words, not mine. <laughs> they call it that. They call it. They okay, call it the, fine. The geek, yeah. Whatever. Geek. To each Some their geeks. own. Pat B. from The Geek Down will join me. And then finally, we talked to Michael O'Laughlin, formerly of the Boston Globe, now a reporter on the Catholic Church for America Magazine, about what happened yesterday in the Catholic Church, big meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in Baltimore, and there was sort of a dramatic moment, courtesy of the Vatican. We'll talk to Mike about Marijuana has been legal in Massachusetts for two years, but it's been impossible to buy it legally. That is all about to change. There are two marijuana shops, retail marijuana shops that are about to open, one in Leicester, one in Northampton. And then from there, the population of these retail shops should explode. But is this just typical of Massachusetts, John, that it took two years to get to this point? Or do you actually think that the process has been a good one? Look at the fiasco with casinos, right? Mm. That they were legalized here in 2011. Seven years later, we have one 
very successful uh, slot parlor down there in Plain Ridge, uh, and uh, and a newly opened casino in Springfield that's Mm -hmm. going gangbusters, at least for now. But there are a lot of people who feel we missed the boat on that, and that uh, market forces are going to render this pot of gold a little less spectacular than it might have been. It would be interesting to see if the same thing happens with legal pot. The rollout is slow, and you sense, as Mike Dundas talks to us, Liam, that this is an industry being very cautious and making sure that everything is rolled out and gets off the ground so that there will be very little criticism later. And, you know, that's what the Gaming Commission said about their painfully Mm. prolonged deliberations. And look what happened. They granted the biggest license there was to Steve Wynn, whose suitability is under dispute. So we talked with the CEO of Sierra Naturals, Michael Dundas, who's also an expert in this uh, industry. He has a cultivation facility in Milford where he's growing marijuana, and he's got three medical marijuana shops that he wants to convert into retail shops. Uh, uh, The Jolly Green Giant has lost it, and we have found it. We've been hearing for a long time that it's going to be days before legal recreational marijuana sales begin in Massachusetts. Are we actually days away at this point? I think we are days away. Uh, The first as your listeners are probably aware, are going to be uh, Cultivate in Leicester, Massachusetts, out by Worcester, and New England Treatment Access's Northampton facility. Both have been granted final licenses for cannabis retail on the adult use side, and we expect to see uh, one or both of those open sometime next week. So what has taken so long? People keep wondering, it's been two years, what's happening? What are the last logistics here that have to happen? So I think really we're looking at an exercise of crossing T's and dotting I's. Now, don't forget, this is the birth of an industry here in Massachusetts. We have not had adult use recreational cannabis ever before. It is a a very well-regulated or envisioned to be a very well-regulated marketplace. We have a comprehensive uh, statute uh, implemented by a comprehensive body of regulations. And we've got a state agency, the Cannabis Control Commission, charged with overseeing all aspects of this organization, uh, I'm sorry, of this industry. And so when I say all aspects, again, I'm talking about cultivation of these plants, manufacturing of marijuana-infused products, testing of all those products to make sure that they're uh, acceptable to uh, high standards for quality, pest pathogen control, plant growth regulators, pesticides, heavy metals, that kind of a thing. And then, of course, the retail distribution. All of these organizations that will engage in the regulated adult use marketplace have to track all of their inventory from seed to sale. And what that means is, in in reality, every single plant that gets grown has to have its own barcode. Mm. That barcode has to follow it through the production process. And the state has to implement this comprehensive seed to sale tracking program. So I think what we're seeing right now at, at the very tail end here is an exercise, again, in crossing T's and dotting I's and just making sure that all of those little tiny logistical elements are properly implemented. Is that barcode process what is holding up the openings of Leicester and Northampton? Because they have the retail licenses, the testing labs are open, the products have been tested. So in theory, they could open their doors tomorrow. But is it the barcode issue that's holding this thing up? Again, I uh, don't work for either of those two organizations. I'm not privy to to what may or may not be uh, 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 a preventing them from moving forward today. But I can say, based on my experience on the Cannabis Advisory Board, based on, frankly, my interactions with individuals that do operate those organizations, they're extremely, uh, they're organizations of extremely high repute. I think those folks are working very, very hard 
to get their doors open. Nobody has a, a, an incentive more than they do to open those doors. So I think likely what we're seeing here is uh, is just an exercise in caution on the part of the Cannabis Control Commission to get things right. And do you think, speaking to your, you know, what you just said about uh, it really behooves people to make sure they do their due diligence and that everything goes exactly right, considering the sensitivity of this, even though the voters of Massachusetts have legalized recreational marijuana, it's a product that the sellers, the retailers, want to make sure is rolled out with the utmost sensitivity and done well. I think that's exactly correct. I mean, look, let's face it. This is, is this a controversial or has been a controversial substance uh, over the course of, of the many decades of the past? And changing or transforming what is or was an illicit uh, sort of underground industry into a regulated industry where we can test this product, make sure it's safe and effective for customers, as well as tax the product and make sure that there are adequate state revenues that are generated from the sale of these products. It takes time. It's a very detail-oriented business. And uh, I think that there's a lot of folks focused very, very hard on, on getting it right. You are the CEO of Sierra Naturals. You have three medical marijuana dispensaries, correct? That's right. We've got one in Cambridge, one in Somerville, and one in the town of Needham. And you also have a cultivating license, so you are in the process of growing it as well. We do. We have a cultivation and products manufacturing facility in the town of Milford, Massachusetts. So two of your medical marijuana facilities, you want to transition those into retail. Where does that stand? So as some of your listeners probably know, one of the uh, Initial steps that any company like mine has to take in getting licensed to sell cannabis for adult use is to go to their local municipality and get permission. And that involves interacting with the local community. It involves interacting with the folks in the neighborhood, as well as uh, local elected officials in order to get what's called a community host agreement, which is an agreement between the community and the uh, organization. Uh, And then also, of course, if there are local licensing requirements, perhaps local zoning requirements, all of those have to be met before an organization like mine can apply to the state Cannabis Control Commission for an adult use license. So we are in the process of working through those logistics with the cities of Cambridge and Somerville and hope to be open early in the next quarter. A year from now, I know this is a tough guess to make, but how many facilities, retail facilities across the state of Massachusetts do you envision being open? I have to say that is a tough one to speculate on. Let's compare it first to a, a state like Colorado. Colorado has had uh, a, a medical marijuana for six or seven years, uh, recreational marijuana now for a couple of years. They have, uh, give or take, the, the dispensaries uh, open and close occasionally, but about 500 or so licenses for a comparable population, a little bit smaller than the state of Massachusetts. My guess is in the next uh, 12 months, we're going to have many fewer than that. I think the Cannabis Control Commission is taking a, a, a reasonable, uh, uh, a very uh, concerted approach to making sure that the organizations that do get up and running are qualified my guess is we'll see less than 100 in the next 12 months. Could be less than 50. One of the biggest concerns of opponents, Mike, when this was on the ballot was clearly young people getting their hands on this, but also that there is no test, no um, breathalyzer test for driving high. Uh, if police pull someone over and they are intoxicated in any way but with marijuana, what steps is the industry taking in Massachusetts to address that concern? 
So there are stringent education requirements in the Cannabis Control Commission regulations around how organizations like mine have to present health and safety information about the use of cannabis to our patients and our customers. So no uh, cannabis organization can open its doors for retail without those uh, educational materials and protocols in place. Those are heavily inspected by the Cannabis Control Commission prior to opening. I imagine those are some of the various things that the commission is inspecting uh, for the licensees that are, that are bound to open in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that cannabis is an interesting uh, an interesting substance related to how it actually uh, affects folks in terms of intoxication. You know, I, I would really actually take it back and flip it and say that alcohol is, uh, we've, we've all gotten used to the breathalyzer test where you can actually breathe into this little device and it'll tell you proof positive whether you're over the limit or under the limit. Alcohol is actually the outlier here. Most drugs will not present themselves or do not present themselves well to that type of uh, intoxication. Uh, tests. Uh, I think law enforcement is very lucky with, with alcohol. Uh, with cannabis, uh, law enforcement officers are reliant on what they call a field sobriety test. They've got trained officers out there to, that are trained to detect impairment. And if an officer does uh, detect impairment, they will have the authority to, uh, to take that person into custody or at the very least get them away from that motor vehicle. Uh, you know, cannabis, again, is also a, a challenging substance from an intoxication right. perspective so you because don't, it affects different people differently. Yeah, you don't think there, that a test can be developed? It's it, look. It is the holy grail of this type of, of 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 testing organizations to try to find a cannabis uh, uh, breathalyzer. Folks have been working at it for a long, long time, and I think the first organization that cracks that nut uh, is going to make themselves very wealthy. But it's been a very difficult goal to achieve thus far. Well, Mike Dundas of Sierra Naturals, we are getting ready for legal recreational marijuana sales in Massachusetts in a matter of days. You say. Thanks so much for chatting with us. We always appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. You're going to do a panel. You might as well have some fun with it. Anybody who expects to be serious can just leave now. What are we doing? We're having some fun in Boston. Nobody has fun in Boston. Boston is a very serious city. No! <laughs> the great, the late, great Stan Lee oh, appearing yeah. at Boston Comic-Con last year. And, uh, you know, uh, when somebody like this passes away, it, it gives you an opportunity to not just reflect on his role as sort of the father of the modern comic mm. and somebody who took comic books to a whole new level of cultural uh, significance, but uh, uh, about the broader, some of the broader cultural issues that this this man's life and work represents. And that's what we had an opportunity to do. I sat down to talk with Pat B., host of the Geek Down podcast on WEMF, the voice of Boston's geek community. And we talked uh, about, uh, first of all, about how uh, once upon a time, comics were considered subversive, right? Mm. You had to hide them from your parents. Did, did either <laughs> of you guys do this? Or was this I had, just... No, I had comic books, but I don't believe I, I – I was hiding different magazines from my mom. <laughs> 
Okay, too much information there, <laughs> Liam. Much. I remember, I remember having to Sports hide my, my uh, screenplay of Grease from my mom and dad, wow. but not um, well, screenplay of Grease. Really? Yes, oh, my yeah. father was horrified. You know what? Grease actually is mm, kind of, and it's, a, by the way, a terrible message. It. Oh, of course Terrible message. But you know what really hit me about Stanley yesterday and all the coverage of him and his messages uh, was his service in the Army in World War II. Mm. Because so many people wrote about the fact that his heroes were flawed, had a lot of his own uh, quirks. They didn't always win, didn't always succeed, but they always fought for... Uh, righteous causes and the message that they gave to American young people was really about inclusion and sensitivity. This from The Hollywood Reporter really got me. He was a World War II veteran Mm. who enlisted in the Army, served in the Signal Corps. He wrote manuals and training films along with Frank Capra, William Soroyan, and Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss. Think about what those people, the training they had there in the Army during Hmm. the war, did for our culture. The greatest generation. By the way, I will say, Stan Lee made being a nerd cool. Even even as recently as when I was growing up, you didn't you didn't want to be a nerd. You wouldn't necessarily talk about how you were reading comic books. Well, the jocks always and, read exactly. Supreme and school, and right? now being nerd, being a nerd, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, being it's a nerd celebrated. is kind of in. Yeah, it's kind of in. And I think that that was partly because of Stan Lee, Spider Man. He he was a total oh, sure. nerd, and then he becomes this superhero. As the Big Bang Theory proves, right? Exactly. Geekdom is in. And he had a spot on the Big Bang Theory That's right. once upon a time. So let's dip into this conversation with Pat B. about the late, great Stan Lee. Listen now to this recording taken off the air at that So, Pat, before we talk about Stan Lee, let's talk about comic books. Now, nowadays, we, we hear a lot about graphic novels, but the comic book... Uh, really has a significant place in modern American culture. Oh, absolutely. I think so. Uh, One of the things that people don't quite understand is that comic books have always been a way for different generations to communicate different ideas you might not see in novels or your regular publications. It's not a newspaper. This is how various people communicate their ideas through a form of entertainment. And it came across a lot of... um, there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of uh, hard times when things like the Comics Code were instituted. Uh, I think even MacArthur targeted a lot of comic book creators because the idea was they're corrupting the youth and such. When, in actuality, these were the people who were journalists but also wanted an outlet for their own creative material. And a lot of them are overshadowed by history. Uh, very few of them actually got the accolades that they deserved. And I don't mean that they were doing mind, like you know, mind-shattering, earth-crushing work. Some of them were just goofy books that would eventually evolve down the line into things that have affected generations. One of my favorite books, personally, has one of my favorite characters has always been Captain Marvel. Um, the DC version of Captain Marvel, originally um, Fawcett Comics. And that's because he was a little boy at the same time I was a little boy. He said a magic word and became this big, strong superhero. That was cool. Mm-hmm. But that was also a book that had goofy things like uh, he had sidekick rabbits and uh, Talkie Tawny was a was a tiger that said the magic word and then got a suit and a cape and all this stuff. This was goofy to adults and it was never really respected as a medium. I think only now, or at least only in the last few years, with the advent of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe with the Netflix TV shows, uh, maybe in the last 20 years or so. Uh, comics is really becoming the cultural zeitgeist that we've uh, that we're acknowledging 
in this day and age while we talk about Stanley. Yeah, and, and, and in reading the the obits uh, for Stanley, I don't think I realized at the time what a significant innovation Spider-Man was. I mean, Peter Parker uh, was really the first teenage comic book hero or superhero who wasn't just sort of a sidekick to an older superhero like Robin to Batman. What what did that mean? Uh, well, I wouldn't know if I'd call Peter Parker the first. He was definitely one of the most poignant, one of the, mo- one of the ones that um, history today considers the most important. But uh, to be perfectly honest, if you listen to interviews with Stan Lee, uh, some of the coolest stories he tells are just how matter-of-fact uh, the creation of some of these characters were. You know, the X-Men, uh, as a lot of people know, and some people don't know, so you may find this interesting, were originally uh, an allegory for the civil rights movement. And some of the funniest stories he would tell were it's just like, you know, one day we decided to create a new character, and I thought, what would be cool for them to do? I'm doing my Stan Lee voice, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, Go ahead. Yeah, he tells how it was just him and his storyboard there, and he looked at his wall and he saw a fly on there. He's like, that's kind of a cool thing he can do. I wonder if a man could do that. And he created characters like Flyman and Bugman. And then he bring those to, um, I think it was Steve Ditko, but don't quote me on that name specifically because it may have been Jack Kirby. But he brought it to his partner at the time. And the guy was like, who do you have here? He's like, uh, this is Flyman. He can climb on walls and do all types of fun stuff the bugs can do. And the guy's like, uh, that's cool, but it's a stupid name. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, what like, well, uh, I can call them things like uh, Centipede Man, Spider-Man, um, Bugman, Stick Beetle. Well, okay, Spider-Man, that sounds cool. Let's go with that. And that really matter-of-fact, almost throwaway story is how he evolved one of what would become the most important figures in his life and, and to the comics in general. So, so a lot of that, uh, these the, were stuff that they liked and then adapting them. Do you think of Stan Lee as an innovator as a transitional figure in comic book art? And if so, how? Okay. Um, you know what? Yes, I do. But for me, it's less about uh, the work and the characters that he created and more of his work ethic and the kind of person he was. Like, Stan Lee is a dude that came from uh, the journalistic world. He had that sense of duty and sense that I need to get the job done. I meet, need to meet deadlines, etc. And what's good about him is he, he's also a guy who knew his limitations. He came from, um, I'm not sure how much history you have there, but he worked uh, during World War II. He worked in uh, World War, in uh, war um, uh, what do you call it, propaganda. Right. He was a writer, not an artist. He was the guy who worked on things like uh, the Ralphie cartoons and such, you know, getting um, the uh, messages that the government wanted to communicate to the general populace in interesting and entertaining ways. So it doesn't seem like we're saying, look, we're right. The enemy's wrong, you know, by bonds. It was uh, look how this young man is dedicated to his country. And, you know, he's spotting um, everyday terrorism, you know, stuff like that. That's not a direct quote either. I'm just. Uh, spitballing some of the stuff you'll see if you follow those and coming from that uh, he learned that there's different ways to tell stories you know it's not always about the good guy does right and the bad guy does wrong it's well let's take a look at some of the day-to-day stuff the good guy deals with that's affecting how he does right you know spider-man's a guy who had like rent to pay you know he's got an aunt to take care of you know her health was failing in some issues he's got girlfriends that he's trying to hide a secret identity from from or in other issues he's got girls that are rejecting him for dates you know or when he gets a date he can't meet it because he's got to go stop a bank robbery or save someone's life you know this was the interesting stuff right and and spider-man was uh 
not necessarily embraced by his contemporaries. Uh, he was constantly subject to suspicion and criticism. A- and then you see the X-Men, of course, were, mute, were mutants, uh, trying to fight a battle against uh, society's uh, aversion to mutants. So there's a theme there that seems to be a real evolution from the earliest, more sort of primitive uses of comics. Oh, oh hell yes. Yeah, that was all Stan Lee's um, sense of wanting to tell a uh, different political story. And he, he knew how to walk that balance between um, saying some political stuff without getting too heavy-handed. And I really like that because it gave it a more... Um, it gave it a more relatable sense, you know, keep in mind, like growing up as a black man in America, uh, I, I had DC comics, which was always the hero saves the day and such. And Marvel comics was also, was also about, yes, the heroes are trying to save the day while society hates them and they're dealing with oppression. And that tends to mesh well when you're a person of color in this country and those environments. Now, um, this was from the 80s. That's a little different from the 60s. But I think those messages still carried across where it's like it made it more um, in touch with the general public view. And that's really a sign of what type of creators you're dealing with. Are comics still an important medium? Do kids still read comics? Oh, come on. What kind of question is that? Of course they do. I think they read them now. (laughs) I'm, I'm just saying, I think they read them now more than ever because uh, de- thanks to the popularity of the Marvel Comics universe, the comic characters and uh, comics in general, the genre as a medium uh, is more widely available to people. You know, there were for a long time, there was a point of view of comics as just this thing that little kids do. You know, some of the most um, innovative books I've ever read came in comic form and not just like novelizations of serious things. You know, one of the ones I'm sure other people you've spoken to have brought up is Maus, uh, M-A-U-S, which is yeah. a story of uh, the Nazi occupation in Art Germany. Art Spiegelman, yeah. Yeah, as told from uh, the point of view of mice. And the whole thing is a clever way to tell an intricate story. But also, uh, if you look at the general comic universes on a more widespread level, the uh, direct X-Men universe, the direct Superman universe, Batman, all those in graphic novel form have tackled some of the uh, most some of the the biggest political issues of that time and today is no different i've seen books that are pro-trump today i've seen books that are anti-trump uh i remember growing up with books when the aids epidemic was at its height and everyone uh everyone had their own ideas and opinions and comics were a good medium for exchange of that and it opens up those dialogues as well as communicates uh, that information, and hopefully presents a damn good story as well. I'm I'm sorry, I'm a little passionate about this uh, specific area of it. No, nothing to apologize for. We're talking to Pat B. from The Geek Down. You can find it at geek-down.com. Thank you for joining us on Studio BZ. Oh, no problem at all. You have a good one. It's the unexpected. It's not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, that's the problem. Yesterday morning, afternoon, there were sort of a flurry on Twitter of surprise and shock as, you know, an event that most people would never pay attention to had sort of a uh, tremor go through it. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops annual meeting in Baltimore, uh, which sounds about as exciting as it is. But this time around, of course, we in the Boston Archdiocese know it was very important for them because they were talking about what they were finally going to vote on. At the 11th hour, word comes from the Vatican 
that no, Vatican bureaucrats and the Pope himself do not want them to take any action at all. And the vote was stopped because let's face it, as one reporter said, this was not a suggestion from Rome. This was an order. Right. The Pope is going to have a meeting in February, a global meeting of bishops to come up with sort of a global Catholic Church list of priorities. And so they wanted the American Catholic bishops to wait. Right. They want it to be a uniform policy. A uniform policy because, of course, it it is a global church with billions of members. However, um, as a Catholic myself, particularly from the Boston Archdiocese, Mm. I think this has to be about one of the most tone-deaf problems that Pope Francis has and continues to have, where he has sort of had this celebrated role over the last few years as uh, he's the cool pope. Mm. You know, he's nice to the LGBT community. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? And all kinds of um, progressive issues. But he has a real blind spot when it comes to the sex abuse crisis. He showed it in the way he talked about the bishop in Chile and in general. And so we talked to Mike O'Laughlin, who is a reporter on Catholicism and politics for America Magazine, which is the Jesuit publication, about what went on here and what this means over the next It's right months. on the heels of the Theodore McCarrick news as well, which obviously sent shockwaves to the Catholic Church yet again. But John, do you think that there's an argument to be made that They're going to do it in February. They want it to be a uniform set of policies. They don't want the U.S. out in front of the Vatican. Uh, They don't want to do anything. I mean, how how often do do they have to tell us? What's the, uh, I believe it's the Maya Angelou line, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so the notion that, well, we just need three more months to come up with just a wonderful (laughs) answer that's going to settle this problem. Come on. I mean, it's just they're fighting a a rear guard action to try to avoid doing anything. It, It you know, to looks like to me as an outsider. Can I address something quickly? Because I think a lot of non-Catholics have looked at this whole crisis and this whole situation, and they're kind of scratching their heads, and they look at people who continue to consider themselves a part of the Catholic Church, and they think, what are they doing? Mm. How could they possibly? And I, I will have to say, as a lifelong practicing Catholic uh, I've, I went to Catholic schools. My children all went to Catholic schools. I think it's kind of two issues here. You have the faith mm. of the Catholic faith itself, and then you have the hierarchy and the current uh, bureaucrats of the Catholic Church right down to your own pastor and parish priest. And I think that's an important distinction. The, when I talk to people, what I often compare it to is the sort of horrible insecurity and crisis of confidence that people had during Watergate, right, Mm. in 1974. Uh, Americans did not, in droves, denounce their American citizenship Mm. because of Watergate and because of impeachment and what the president had done. But they were incredibly shocked and upset. But you stay within, you know, you you remained an American and you fought for better leadership down the road. I I think think practicing Catholics, that's kind of where they are, that they uh, believe in their faith. They understand flawed human beings have control of the church in the moment and they're Mm. furious about those decisions. But like as for me, for instance, it's my connection to my parents, my ancestry. I won't let these people take that away from me. The one thing I would ask about that, and then we can jump into the interview with Michael O'Loughlin, is um, unlike the the president, the pope and the hierarchy of the church is is kind of central to the faith in a way, isn't it? Because they set the theology. 
So I've doesn't it make it doesn't does it, make, does it make you question for myself anyway? Yes. Which oh, maybe I'm, makes me a bad Catholic. But uh, you, <laughs> you know, I think you separated. Yes, I think that you know you look back across the centuries, popes. Uh, sent armies to kill people. You know, they they used to be able to kill people who disagreed uh, with the doctrine of the Catholic Church and send armies to defend the Pope. We have to remember that it is uh, a monarchy of sorts, a centuries-old organization. I think, um, you know, that is the human flaw, uh, you know, as each age goes by. The challenge is to take the sort of eternal truths, if you believe in Jesus Christ, of what he taught uh, relative to the human beings that are making the day-in and day-out bureaucratic decisions of your time, and that that's your philosophical, theological challenge. To reconcile those two things without giving up the faith, but either cooperating with or fighting uh, what you don't don't agree with. This is what you see, the kind of conflict among very conservative and very liberal Catholics. For instance, a lot of conflict over Pope Francis himself as a religious figure. Discussing all this with us, Michael O'Laughlin, formerly of the Boston Globe and now of America Magazine. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. Let's talk about what happened in Baltimore yesterday because I think it left a lot of people scratching their heads. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops at their annual meeting was supposed to take a crucial vote. And at the 11th hour, the Vatican kind of swooped in and said, no, don't do that. What happened? Yeah, it took a lot of people by surprise. So the bishops are gathered in Baltimore this week uh, for their annual meeting, and they were supposed to vote on four new procedures and protocols that would hold Catholic bishops accountable either for sex abuse or for mishandling cases of sex abuse. And like you said, at the 11th hour, the Vatican kind of said, don't do this until bishops from around the world meet in Rome in February to discuss this issue of sex abuse. And I think a lot of people were upset because there were these expectations that uh, the bishop here in the United States who had been working on this issue uh, since the summer would walk away from this meeting with something in place, some kind of response. Now it looks like that's just not going to happen. So, well, you're right. I mean, I think most American Catholics thought finally, you know, the, the biggest issue had been that members of the hierarchy had not been taken to task for their decision making about what they knew about pedophile priests or other transgressions, Cardinal McCarrick, for instance. And finally, there were going to be some rules in place. Um, have you heard from bishops there? What's been the reporting from the meeting about the dissatisfaction? Because basically the word came down from the boss, right? So there's no fighting this. Yeah. So what seems to have happened is bishops started meeting in September to come up with these new protocols and they didn't finish um, the draft documents until late October. They had to send them on to Rome to make sure that they were all in compliance with uh, church law, basically. And uh, Rome seems to have said that they didn't have enough time, that there were some issues with the uh, proposals, and that as a result, they need more time to go through them. So it seems to be an issue of, at least from what I hear from some bishops, of trying to get too much done in too short a time frame. So they're proceeding on in talking about them and debating them and discussing them, but there won't be a vote. Um, the earliest, it sounds like, will be in March. Uh, meet in Rome, bishops from around the world to discuss uh, these exact kinds of issues. Do we know what it is the bishops were planning to do? What rules they were going to put in place or punishments? 
We do. So they've been discussing uh, those this afternoon and they'll continue the discussions into tomorrow. Uh, they're looking at four things. Uh, one is the establishment of a third party reporting system. So if someone has a complaint against the bishop either for abuse or for mishandling an allegation of abuse, they could call this third party hotline and report it and uh, be told how to report it to civil authorities if that's necessary or how to uh, launch an investigation internally. Uh, they're talking about establishing a commission uh, run by lay people that would investigate allegations of abuse or mishandling of abuse. Uh, they're talking about a uh, standard uh, for bishops themselves, how they're to conduct themselves uh, comes to running a diet, how to handle abuse allegations, how to comport their own uh, uh, ends of behavior. And finally, they're looking at adopting policies for bishops who have either retired or been removed from office sexual abuse or uh, mishandling allegations of sexual abuse. So there, there's these four different priorities that are all kind of intermingled that uh, just from the discussion this afternoon, there's still a lot of questions that bishops had. So even if they had been able to vote, it's not certain they would have gone through because, like I said, they're trying to do a lot of work in a very short amount of time. And there's no question, Mike. I mean, if certainly we here in the Boston Archdiocese know better than most people around the country that parishioners have walked uh, with their checkbook. Uh, they've spoken with their checkbook. They've walked with their feet. The pews are more empty than ever before. And so the bishops have to be keenly aware there is a complete crisis within the American Catholic Church. I wanted to get your reaction to this. Daniel Burke, covering the conference for CNN, tweeted this earlier this morning. And he wrote, younger bishops are shaking their heads as an older bishop blames the clergy abuse crisis on Vatican II and the sexual revolution during a floor session at the conference. There seems to be a wide gap here between the old guard and the new. Do you think this is really coming down to a real intergenerational problem? I think to some extent, Dan is right, that there does seem to be uh, some defensiveness on the part of bishops who have been at this for a number of years, um, including back in 2002 when the scandal broke in Boston. Uh, one of the younger bishops, for example, the Bishop of Cheyenne in Wyoming, uh, actually led an investigation of one of his predecessors who was accused of abuse. And uh, that was sort of a, a, a revolutionary moment in the church to have a bishop investigate one of his own predecessors. I, I, I have to say, so, one of the strongest voices I heard uh, this week in terms of getting something done at this meeting was from Boston's own Cardinal O'Malley, who said, people are fed up and they want to see us take some concrete steps here. So. Yes, there is, I think, an intergenerational thing going on, but you have people like uh, Cardinal O'Malley who are not so young anymore, who have been doing this for a while, saying we need to do something. When the U.S. bishops announced yesterday that there was going to be this delay, it was obvious that there was some frustration. Do you think that this is shaking some faith, not just among the U.S. bishops, but maybe among the American Catholic populations, shaking some faith in the Pope, who otherwise has been very popular? I do. Um, I think we've seen for a while now that when it comes to Pope Francis, sex abuse isn't exactly his strongest suit, and then this certainly won't help that perception. Uh, do you think the fact that the Cardinal O'Malley is the Pope's uh, one of the Pope's closest advisors, and the fact that he is being so outspoken, can help Pope Francis get past what is really seen as this blind spot for him? I think it certainly helps. Carter Malley certainly enjoys reputation being someone who can fix messy situations. And what I've heard from bishops and cardinals I've interviewed this week is there might be something stronger coming from the Vatican than what we propose. 
they may want to work with us to make sure everything is sound and in compliance with church law and they could perhaps uh, present it to the wider world. So this, the stakes of this February meeting, I think, have just been raised because the Vatican said, wait until we do this. Well, Michael Laughlin, Catholic reporter for America Magazine and author of The Tweetable Pope, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll be talking to you again. Thanks for having me. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. Wow, that was a mouthful. <laughs> good show. <laughs> Thank we, you. Another good we one. went from marijuana yeah. to Stan Lee to the Catholic Church. I think that That's there, there's, a, there's a common denominator there. <laughs> okay. Hopefully one of our brilliant listeners will find that. And <laughs> oh, you know okay. what? If Holy you, smoke. If you do and you want to let us... <laughs> okay, hey, you, that's true. Not bad, Paul. <laughs> not, not, not bad. bad. You know, on the fly? Yeah. Yeah. That was not Holy scripted. Holy smoke, Batman. That's there it is. it is. Okay. There it is. Like it. Spider-Man. That is DC. That's right. Yeah, Stanley <laughs> yeah, Stan Lee was Spider-Man. <laughs> Close so enough. anyway, if you want to uh, read the tea leaves here or uh, or tie these elements together in your own way, feel free to give us a shout. Uh, you can tweet us. I am at Keller at Large, at Keller at Large. And the podcast is at Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. And I am at Liam WBZ. By the way, what Jonathan tells us, more and more people are listening. Things Excellent. are moving along. So when you listen, give us a rating. Write a review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Comment on Liam's voice. Comment. Do you wonder how <laughs> handsome he is? Does he really look like that in person? And of course, if you want to know more about Liam's private boyhood stash oh my of God. questionable material, <laughs> uh, that could be a subject for an you entire know, send a tweet oh, send a question yeah. yes please He's do I'm, I'm an open book transparent. I'm an open book as True. Elizabeth Warren that's says. the way we like we it we believe in transparency <laughs> NTMI not too much information <laughs> never too and much in that, on that note uh, this same time next week we'll, we'll be seeing you, you. Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I, I oh. don't even hear it anymore. You know what? You know how we share this one? Excelsior. Excelsior. That's right. That could be the most amount of characters, Stanley character.